0: Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with G-Maw got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3am googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. dances against heavy black curtains as you take your place around a large round table in the center of a cluttered room. Ornate fixtures adorn the walls and the space is so poorly lit that you can barely see the gentleman sitting across from you. You don't know him, but you know why he's here. This gathering is taking place at the home of Ava C., a medium with a following that includes Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. She's well-known and said to be reputable, so you've come to try and make contact with a family member who has passed recently. Ava C. will conjure the spirits, and you'll see them plainly with your own eyes as they materialize in her parlor. As the woman enters the room and takes a seat at the head of the table, you think about leaving, feeling that the individual before you cannot possibly talk to spirits. There doesn't seem to be anything special about her. But the room is so dark that you doubt you'll find your way out. You choose to stay, because it's the only choice you can make. A voice rises in the darkness, commanding the spirits come forth and make themselves known. There's one spirit, Bien Boa, who will guide the attendants on their spiritual quest this evening. He will bring their loved ones back from the other side. The voice becomes haggard and forced, stuttering and stammering. The table begins to shake and rise in front of you. In the near darkness, you notice Eva C. is slumped over, muttering incoherently, seemingly talking to someone who isn't there. The spirits? She suddenly sits up and you watch, wide-eyed, as ectoplasm, white and flowing, runs from her mouth and onto the table. The assembled crowd gasps collectively. Then suddenly, a face appears. Is it the face of your deceased loved one? No. But it looks so familiar, you can see an eye, part of a mouth. Ava C. chokes out more ectoplasm. The scene plays out in minutes that seem like hours, before she slumps forward again, limp on the tabletop. One of the attendants moves to help her, but she holds up a hand. Ava C., visibly shaken, enters a cabinet draped in black cloth. The door is closed behind her, and the assembled crowd of eight or so begin to sing a hymn, Abide With Me. In a few moments, a form emerges from the cabinet, luminescent in a flowing white gown. The figure seems to create its own light, Upon its head is a crown made from a cloth that resembles thick cobwebs. Everyone is immediately silent, their eyes transfixed, and a booming voice tells you that you are now in the presence of 300-year-old Indian Brahmin, Yen Boa, who is the direct connection to the spirit realm. Ava C. has conjured him forth. Hey, OddPod listeners, and welcome back to another episode. This week, I wanted to focus on mediumship and present you with one of the most notorious mediums of all time. Even more cringeworthy, by today's standards, than the Long Island medium. I'm speaking, of course, of Ava Carriere, a woman with the unique ability to produce ectoplasm from every orifice of her body. You could look at Ava and think that she's a charlatan who cheated people out of their money and made the bereaved believe that they were actually communicating with deceased loved ones. A shitty thing to do indeed. Or you could examine the woman herself and her life and admire her dedication to the craft of deception. And the woman was dedicated. Martha Barrow, the woman who would eventually be dubbed Ava Carriere or Ava C., was born in France in 1886. Her father was a French army officer stationed in Algiers, the capital of Algeria, in northern Africa. The bulk of her early life is a complete whitewash, but we do know that she was engaged to the son of French General Hélène Noël. His name was Maurice. At 18 years of age, Barod intended to marry Maurice, but... He died on a trip to the Congo, having caught some sort of tropical virus while he was there, and he was just unable to recover. Now, traumatic events, including but not limited to the death of a loved one, no matter how unexpected, can cause people to do eh, outlandish things. It can also encourage them to see the world around them in a different way. The death of her beloved Maurice seemed to change the world in a big way for Barod and she began holding seances at the family villa, Carmen, in Algiers. She settled at the villa with General Noël and his wife, and would hold many seances there. I wonder what the Noëls thought of this. Perhaps they felt sorry for Barode and offered their home to the grieving woman. Apparently, Madame Noël had been contacting a spirit named Bienboa via Ouija board, and the spirit claimed to know Barod from a previous life. Not long after, Bien Boa began making appearances at Barod's seances. I wonder if the Ouija communication somehow influenced Barod to become a medium. But perhaps we'll never know. Albert Freyr von Schreck-Natzing, a respected German physician, psychotherapist, and researcher of paranormal activities, was a frequent visitor and took photos while she performed her seances in an effort to lend credibility to her practice. He would eventually publish a book of these photographs as well as his notes on the subject titled The Phenomena of Materialization. The English version was published in 1920, but the German version was published in 1913. Schrenknazing's book only served to shed light on the ruse, that quote carrier was perpetrating. If it quacks like a duck, am I right? But I still admire his spunk. In time, Shrink became enamored with mediumship, and he attended many sessions. But his first was with Eusipia Palladino. From Occultworld.com shrink Natsing's first foray into his new field came in the form of telepathy experiments, modeled on those of psychologist Charles Roche. The direction of his research changed sharply, however, when Roche invited him to participate in a series of sittings with Eusippia Palladino at his home on the Ile-de-Ribode in France in 1894. Palladino was a physical medium who although she was not above cheating when given the chance, would produce wrappings, tilt tables, and move objects without physical contact. Although according to spiritualism, such effects are accomplished through spirit agency. Reshay and his friends at the British Society for Psychical Research, some who were present at these sittings as well, believed them to be produced by Palladino herself, by some paranormal means. This connection made with Roche is pertinent because it brought schrenk to Martha Barode. Roche had previously worked with Barode in Algiers in an effort to expose her as a fake, and he pointed schrenk in her direction. The German psychotherapist was fascinated by Barode's ability to produce a white flowing material from her various orifices. Seriously, guys. All of them. All of the orifices. Rocher called the substance ectoplasm. Many mediums of the time produced wrappings. Some would crack their joints in order to create knocking noises for their crowds. The Fox sisters were infamous for this. Or they tilted tables, often just lifting the edge of a table with their knee in the dark. was enough to send spectators reeling. But Schrenk-Natzing found Barode's performance unique. Her materializations, the process of forming... Solid spirit faces or figures during a seance were the tipping point for Schrenknotzing, and he further studied Barod, who he named Ava C, for a period of four years in his Paris laboratory. Rocher had been ridiculed, as well as the subject of his research, Palladino, so it's likely that Schrenknotzing gave Barod a fake name to save her and himself any possible embarrassment from Phenomena of Materialization. Quote, "...any dealings with the discredited so-called spiristic phenomena are attended, even now, by certain disadvantages to the investigator. Not only are his powers of observation, his critical judgment, and his credibility brought into question, not only is he exposed to ridicule by the reproach of charlatanism but he even incurs the danger of being regarded as mentally deficient or even insane, end quote. goes on to write that even the well-known psychologist Charles Shea has for the present entirely withdrawn from any dealings with the forbidden subject, for the reasons I've listed. Shrinknatsing took his work with Avisi very seriously, and the book is a testament to that fact. Each seance is entirely documented with photos, detailed notes, and diagrams. The reader is led through the entire experience from start to finish. Even almost seances are documented. One entry from May 20th, 1910 reads, quote, Negative. Ava was indisposed. Hot and stormy weather. End quote. There were several mentions of the seance being canceled due to inclement weather, while some entries simply read negative. One thing all of the sittings have in common is Not Singh's seemingly unflappable belief in the process. Of course, once he published his book, many people realized that the process was a sham, but let's explore how Ava C entertained her audience and what went into her very convincing performances. In the intro, I gave you a little taste of what it was like to sit in on one of these seances, not just a seance with Ava C., but the experience of a seance with any medium during that time period. Of course, each medium had their own little tricks and their claims to fame, but Ava, with her ectoplasmic ejections, was somewhat of a pioneer. So, upon entering the space that the medium intended to use for the seance participants would be asked to sit. In some cases, the participants are looking for a lark. In others, they're the bereaved, the ones who have lost loved ones. They have a desire to get a message from the other side. Occasionally, one or more of the participants is a plant, someone who knows the medium's game, and gives aid in the form of a knock or a whisper in the dark when the show is running a little slow. It was not uncommon for those who attended seances to sit in the darkened room for upwards of an hour, waiting for a message from the other side. During this time, the medium would be sitting at the head of the table, behind a heavy black curtain or inside a cabinet, waiting for the arrival of their conjured spirits. The last option seems particularly uncomfortable given close quarters and my personal dislike of confined spaces. Um, did I mention I now record this podcast in a walk-in closet? No? (laughs) Well, that's a thing now. Moving right along. The participants would be asked to sing a hymn of some sort. It literally did not matter which one, so long as it preoccupied the gathered crowd long enough that the medium could gather her spirits in whatever form she'd chosen. For some, spirits took the form of a table seemingly rising on its own. For others, the spirits would wrap on the floor, the wall, or the underside of the table. Eva's spirits were often cardboard cutouts or clippings from an issue of a magazine called Le Miroir, wrapped or draped in cheesecloth, or a fabric of similar composition, and then attached to her clothing or her hair. The purpose of the hymn is not only to create an ambiance, but also to distract and create noise loud enough to mask the obvious sounds of a medium clumsily flopping around in a cabinet. Ava's spirits in particular drew the interest of her crowds. Some of those assembled likely thought that the faces in the cheesecloth looked familiar. Not necessarily like family members or friends of theirs, but royalty or women from magazines... Little did some of them know. From Wikipedia, Miss Ava prepared the heads chosen from the magazines before every seance and endeavored to make them unrecognizable. A clean-shaven face was decorated with a beard. Gray hairs became black curls. A broad forehead was made into a narrow one. In spite of all of her endeavors, she could not obliterate certain characteristic lines. The really interesting thing about Ava's ectoplasm was that it supposedly appeared out of nowhere, literally out of thin air. Shrink Knotsing writes of this in his Phenomena of Materialization because it was obviously necessary for him to cover all of his bases. At this point, I'd like to let our listeners know that the information immediately following this disclaimer will likely completely cover the talk if you've not yet had it with your kids. Ava C. wasn't shy about letting attendees check for deception. It's not super graphic, but there are some uh, medical terms and examinations to follow. I also think it's pertinent to add that Ava C. may have been a lesbian. There's been some talk that one Madame Bisson, who often worked with her to create these kind of displays were in some sort of a sexual relationship. Many of her sessions included Madame Besson, who would often and thoroughly check the medium for signs of deception. As this is the case, I shall furthermore refer to the female sex organ as kumquat. I can't say for sure that Ava C. and Madame Besson were in a sexual relationship, but I can say that being a lesbian in 1910 likely wasn't super cool with a lot of folks. If a lot of folks even really knew what a lesbian was. A commentary might go something like this. I don't know what's up with Ava. She sure wears a lot of pants. Scene. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here all week. Anyway. Trinknazing writes, When the medium put on the knitted hose garment before sitting, Madame Besson, in my presence, introduced her finger into the medium's kumquat. She was also explored by Professor B, and the author through the garment, but with negative result. Assuming that a female medium wished to use the kumquat as a hiding place for closely rolled packets, examples, chiffon, gauze, she would have to attach some kind of cord or ribbon to the packet beforehand in order to be able to withdraw it. The cord would be detected at the mouth of the kumquat, and any finger introduced into the kumquat would feel the foreign body. Schrenknazing then goes on to describe the wide-mouthed Versus smallmouth variety, and he's not talking about bass. He also discusses hiding items in the anal cavity. What? What did you think I meant when I said Ava liked to play hide the gauze? The restoration of the material to its hiding place would have been even more difficult. It presupposes a careful folding up and packing in the darkness of the cabinet an introduction of the packet into the anal opening would be almost unthinkable without the use of Vaseline. Yep, he went there. But he doubts she did. I also love that this is almost unthinkable. Is he speaking from experience? So, what I've related to you previously will likely make this next bit very, very gross. But considering Ava was big on ectoplasm, I think it's pertinent to share. So this is an account of another recorded seance between the same participants, Dr. B, of saying, and Ava C. And he's essentially relating what the ectoplasm feels like. Quote, Ava's left hand rested in the hands of Dr. B, who sat in front of her. Her right was held in both my hands. The curtain was fully opened. Suddenly, I felt on my hand a cool, sticky mass which touched me. I took hold of it and brought it carefully outside of the curtain without letting go of Ava's hand. The mass lengthened out my fingers and down from my hand, and I could observe it for one or two minutes but while I continued to unravel it carefully, it dissolved and disappeared in my hands. It was very difficult to describe this substance. It had the impression of a flat, striped, thread-like, sticky, cool, and living substance. It was odorless and had a light gray or whitish color. My fingers remained moist from the touch. The phenomenon was repeated about eight times, and four times I was able to take hold of the mass and show it to another participant, Dr. B. He goes on to tell of another event in which Ava cried out when he took hold of the ectoplasm. She said something to the effect of, That hurts me, but I wish it all the same. Following inspection, Natsing writes that the ectoplasm was, quote, reabsorbed and disappeared. I think it's also important to note at this point that Ava apparently ingested small amounts of blueberry syrup prior to her seances, and this was what was coloring the cheesecloth so that it had this kind of blue-gray hue. Politrix, I tell ya. In the 1920s, through an investigation by the Society for Psychical Research, it was found that the ectoplasm was primarily made out of chewed paper. So, moving right along, once the medium was thoroughly checked for signs of deception, schrenk went about the grueling task of cataloging every event, no matter how minuscule. He set up cameras and proceeded to take photos of the proceedings using a flashlight. The photos themselves are pretty damning in terms of proving that Ava C.'s mediumship was a complete hoax. But he went about recording the event in hopes of convincing his readership of the complete opposite. You see, Shrink Notzing was utterly convinced, as were many of the other attendees at Ava's seances. From what I've read... Many of her participants were male, and they were likely distracted by the nude woman being, quote, checked for deceptions and gallivanting around in the nude, which was absolutely a thing. Some of the evenings with Ava and Schrenknazing were even described as pornographic and often devolved into sexual escapades. From here, I think I'd like to read you one of Shrink Singh's accounts. It helps to put one of these scenes into perspective and it'll give you a good idea of what one of his investigations entailed and what the situation looked like. (laughs) Sitting of the 7th of June, 1911. Present M. de Fontenay, Madame Bisson, and the author. Sitting commenced at 9.30 p.m. Four electric lamps lighted up the room during the whole sitting. Conditions and control, as usual. Ava this day wore the new tights. She undressed in the seance room and put on the seance costume in our presence, after we had carefully examined it. Five cameras were ready, two on the wardrobe, two facing the curtain at a distance of 10 feet, and one in the cabinet, which, as usual, had been carefully searched. Obviously, in consequence of the discussion of the toes photographed, the medium demanded a special control of her feet. She stretched herself on her chair and laid them on our knees, so that M. de Fontenay had charge of her left foot and I her right foot, outside the curtain. She also gave me her right hand, and M. de Fontenay her left hand. Her hand was visible as soon as she had opened the curtain, with the hands held by us. The control demanded by the medium herself, which, in addition to an illumination by four electric lamps, placed her hands and feet entirely in our power and excluded all cooperation of these members during the production of the phenomena. In these circumstances, there appeared on her left side at about the level of her head, but more than 20 inches away from it, the distinct form of a left hand, with a portion of an arm corresponding approximately in size to a female hand. This strongly luminous, strongly outlined, and freely suspended structure, apparently made up of a path-like mass, quickly moved down to about the middle of her breast and disappeared behind the curtain. The whole process took two to three seconds, rather a long time, and was repeated five times so that we had sufficient time for exact observation. The fingers were separated and directed downwards, but showed no skin color nor any other detail. In fact, they accurately corresponded in their appearance with those hand shapes which we had photographed on several occasions. Special interest attaches to the undoubted perception that the hand shape appeared to be quite flat, as seen in previous photographs. We have, therefore, under these rigid conditions, the freely suspended flat sketch of a female hand endowed with independent motion. In spite of its imperfect development, it was mobile and independent of the medium's body. The whole observation is of importance in connection with the criticism of the glove-like form seen in several photographs. It tells against the hypothesis of fraud and in favor of the genuine character of this peculiar formative process. Releasing the foot, I extended my right hand into the curtain and asked to be touched on the palm by the materialized hand. Four times it approached to within about four inches, but it regularly disappeared again as if repelled by the radiation from the human skin. Again at a critical moment, unfortunately, the electric circuit for the ignition of the magnesium failed. On this occasion, it would have been easy to photograph the freely suspended hand since it remained exposed for several seconds to the influence of our gaze and to the light. The fault in the circuit was found and remedied, so that at least in the second half of the sitting a photograph was possible. After we had taken our places again and had re established the previous control, we soon saw on Ava's breast and in her lap that veil like mass that had once before been photographed. I approached my hand in order to grasp it, but it regularly receded before me and disappeared. While the medium's hands and feet were held by the observers as described, we saw a veil-like strip about 4 inches broad and 20 inches long, descending from the upper left-hand region. It was more feebly developed and was less distinctly seen than the previous phenomena. On again perceiving the apparently woven fabric in the medium's lap, The flashlight was ignited, and the phenomena disappeared at the same moment. The sitting closed at 11.30. Examination of the medium and cabinet negative. Taking into account the wearing of new tights and the strict supervision of her extremities, the results of this evening form a justification for the medium, as they prove that Ava does not require either her hands or her feet for the production of the phenomena. The photographs, both simple and stereoscopic, show the following aspect. The author holds the medium's right hand and right foot, while her right foot rests on her left knee. On the other side, de Fontenay holds her left hand with his right. Her left foot rests on de Fontenay's left knee and is held by Madame Bisson's hand. In his left hand, de Fontenay holds the press button for igniting the magnesium light and his thumb is just exerting the pressure. The medium herself has her head bent forward. The features indicate a certain energetic concentration of the will. On her chest is seen, at the height of her shoulders, a broad white fabric resembling muslin, and is shaded just where it bends to the left, while it vanishes on her right side into the material of the dress. On the left side, the fabric is transparent, and underneath it are seen two sharply defined forms, resembling fingertips cut out of white paper. The photograph taken by the camera set up in the cabinet shows the medium in profile. In that photograph, the figure gives the impression of a material strongly bulging forward and having a sharp edge below, recalling, to some extent, a mass of plaster of Paris. One also recognizes the form of a fingertip. The upper part of the fabric is surrounded by a radiating aura. But whether this is simply the effect of the luminous white color on the photographic plate, or is produced by the composition of the fabric, is difficult to decide. I'd like to thank you all for listening this week, and for all the awesome feedback I've been receiving from our listeners Shout out to Dave in Sweden for his kind email. I'm so glad you're enjoying the show, Dave. I hope that I can continue to creep you out. If you'd like to connect with me on social media, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at IdentityPod. Find me on Facebook at The Audentity Podcast. If you'd like to shoot me an email with some feedback to share a paranormal experience, or even just to suggest a topic for an upcoming show... That address is theidentitypodcast at gmail.com. All the best, dear listeners. Have a great week. And as always, stay spooky.